Come on in to Margaret McSweeney's Kitchen for Kitchen Chat, where every week you'll meet chefs, cookbook authors, foodies, gourmets, and just plain people who love to eat. And along with laughter, chat, recipes, and stories about food, you'll sometimes also hear words of inspiration, love, and hope. As Margaret always says, kitchen chat is food for the senses and food for the soul. So grab a cup of coffee, put your feet up on a comfy chair, and get ready to spend a little time with Margaret and her friends. Welcome to Kitchen Chat. This is your host, Margaret McSweeney, and I'm here with my co-host, Chef Jamie Larita. And before we present this very special Kitchen Chat with Barbara Lazaroff, I wanted to kind of put a foreword, a preface to this. Chef Jamie and I were actually in L.A. at the beautiful Spago uh, together uh, interviewing Barbara and her son, Bob. And then COVID happened. So if we could quickly catch everyone up, and then we will go into the recording from March. So Barbara, welcome to Kitchen Chat. It's a pleasure. You know how much I love being with you. And my 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 love, Jamie, Chef Jamie, uh, Margaret, I adore you. This is, this is the next best thing to being with you in person. Aww. So here we are. Wow. Well, first so of all, how are you? How is everything? Well, it's certainly been a roller coaster. Um, as you know, um, everybody is experiencing challenging times due to the pandemic um businesses home life school life it affects every aspect of of daily living you've got you know parents with children where the conundrum of whether you send the children back to school whether the schools will be open or not and the concerns with that business wise i mean various businesses are they're all hit hard it's difficult um, obviously, we're going to talk about the restaurant business. Hospitality has been really, you know, it was devastated, so to speak. And yet these are, in many ways, essential workers. People, of course, have to have to eat. Um, but we'll talk about that in, in a moment. Um, there have been so many illnesses, so many, so many deaths. I personally have, as of today, another, an eighth girlfriend that had COVID and happily all of them survived, but some have had residual effects. So, you know, when people tell you, oh, it's just the flu or whatever, it's not. And of course, it affects differently. And so I will say that the most important message here is wear a mask, make sure other people are wearing a mask, because you wearing a mask, the, the you know, uniform you for everybody is protecting others and we are part of a community we are part of a um, a global community um, and that's the only way we're really going to you know curb this and, and really bring the numbers back down so how am I doing and how is everything doing well people anybody who has seen the news and taken note of California we are in a, another a second wave of the pandemic, the numbers in Los Angeles have climbed um, astronomically. I will say that the restaurant industry is um, hospitality in the United States is responsible for about $1 trillion of business. We 15.5 million um, employees, so many in the industry hospitality restaurants, hotels with restaurants, hotels themselves have been um, have been hit very, very hard. It's a roller coaster because we we closed, we did to go for a long time and it was actually uh, very, very busy with the to go. We have a lot of loyal uh, guests, customers and so it was it was successful. Of course, when any restaurant says successful and doing well, it is just a margin or a fraction, I should say a fraction of their real business model. So at some point, a lot of restaurants have failed 
or will fail, and some will resurrect and some will not. We will be losing many businesses that will not reopen, uh, meaning, I, I don't mean ours particularly, but many, many restaurants I love, many people in the community that I love, here, New York, other places, because they cannot they cannot sustain on the um, socially distanced model that is not the way the business model was set up for many restaurants, particularly smaller ones where people cannot possibly social distance, which is why, you know, they can't, they can't do business with tables that far apart. The, the restaurants are too small. So now we're in the era of outdoor dining, which is quite lovely in LA. Might not work in the winter in some places. We're going to have to look into tenting with outsides and lots of other creative, um, uh, solutions that we're doing, but we did the to go. Then uh, Governor Newsom reopened LA, and then of course, as I saw the numbers escalating and escalating, I went very quickly and designed an outdoor plan all along the front of Spago, down the street, Cannon, and because I had worked on the 80 foot by 20 foot wall to separate Wilshire from Cannon in the midst of the metro, the subway construction, and then I was on an art committee to put up a piece of art by Matsuyama, New York Japanese artist, um, and we have a cul-de-sac. So this has worked out beautifully. It's kind of come together in an intersection of two very difficult and challenging uh, events that have produced something positive, but we all wish there wasn't COVID. So we are working well, you did that such now. an amazing job. You did such an amazing job, Barbara, with with. Uh, I remember being in front of Spago with Margaret and looking at that, you know, beautiful mural and it, it you integrated it as if it was always there. Of course, uh, that's how you do things, but you did such a wonderful job with providing people with the outdoor experience um, and making something, you know, making lemons out of lemonade. That's some really good lemonade that you created out there. Something that, that Chef Jamie would have done as well because you are so as a designer, as a chef, as a person who has extraordinary aesthetics, you 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 would have created something fabulous as well. And I think it looks it looks know, wonderful. It looks wonderful. Yeah. And so so the answer in short is it's difficult for a lot of people. Now they're going about and making parklets in the street. And frankly, um, Margaret and Jamie People are loving it so much, they're hoping that Los Angeles will incorporate this in the future, even post-COVID, and we certainly hope there's a post-COVID sometime sooner than later. I want to add one other thing. Since people out there are struggling so, um, now is the time in everyone's life, even when they are struggling themselves, to think about organizations like No Kid Hungry and Project Angel Food and many other organizations to um, aid people who are food challenged and to understand that even if we're struggling, there's always somebody that's having a more difficult time. And these are people that have had jobs for 20, 30 years who have supported their families and taken care of their elderly and their young and Now's the time to look around you and say, how can I help? Those are beautiful words. How can we help? And how can we help in terms of the restaurants? Support your local restaurants. Support your neighborhood restaurants. If you want them to be there when this is over, if you want the um, the joy of walking out on the street or going, you know, going out to a, a, a nice neighborhood meal or having your neighborhood be have life and, and, and character, you need to support them now because they may not be there when you truly want them to be there. Well, Barbara, it's always a joy to speak with you, and I just treasure those moments that Chef Jamie and I had there at Spago with you and Byron, and we just wanted to give everyone an update before we segue into that very special kitchen chat we had. Thank you, and I just want to tell Jamie, keep cooking, Jamie. The food looks amazing. The Viking showroom you designed and the, and the products are amazing. And Margaret, 
I'm going to tell you again, I love your voice. Uh, you, you need to do voiceovers. Your voice is so beautiful. You did such a great job with that presentation. And I love Kitchen Chat and all the fascinating people you find in the two of you interview. It's just been great. So love you both very oh, much. Oh, love you. Love you back, Barbara. <laughs> Stay stylish okay. and gorgeous as you are. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Big hug. Hugs from L.A. You can send them from heaven. I'm sending you hugs from L.A. Hello, dear foodie friends, and welcome to Kitchen Chat. I'm your host, Margaret McSweeney, here with my co-host, Chef Jamie Larita, and I am just beyond honored and delighted to be at the legendary Spago here in Beverly Hills with one of my dearest friends, we, Barbara Lazaroff. We are great friends, that's true. Yes. And yes. I'm very happy to be here with one of my favorite people, my younger son, Byron <laughs> Lazaroff-Puck. So, chef and manager and so he's ex it's exciting because he went to cornell now he's in the business as well yeah thank you guys so much for having me it's a pleasure oh well we are really in the seat of royalty here <laughs> truly you're you're <laughs> you are hollywood royalty we should this... all have food crowns yes yeah. I, I really... i'll get them made for you yeah, get them made. i don't deserve mine yet but i'll have one for you i will oh. definitely <laughs> wear a crown next to all of well, at least these two queens. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I can't wait to hear about the history of this wonderful, wonderful restaurant, as well as the future and how it kind of continues about family legacy and creating taste memories for all of your guests throughout the year. Thanks. So. Can you give us a peek about when did when did Spago open its doors? Well, Spago opened initially January 16, 1982. I remember it extremely well. <laughs> Up on Sunset, I used to call it high above Sunset. All of our balloons, all of our collateral said this. This is something I created. And I called all of our staff members spaghetti after oh. the first baby was born. And then we would have an anniversary party every year and everybody got a sweatshirt and, and they all coveted it so much. And it was really, really quite a family. Hmm. So even prior to having our own family, Cameron, my older son, is getting his PhD in Byron, who at 14, uh, 13 and a half, decided he was going into the restaurant business <laughs> and announced it in front of 600 people. Yeah, it, was a, it was a proclamation of sorts at my bar mitzvah that I have never lived down, so <laughs> I just got to keep it going at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it was many, many years. You know, we had all of the famous uh, Marion Irving Lazar Oscar parties there that predate yes. the Vanity Fair parties. So we would stay there, and then when uh, Wolf went off to do the governor's ball when um, Alan um, and Marilyn uh, Bergman, who are the famous songwriters, you know, the great American songbook, asked, asked him, would, would Spago do the food? I would stay at Spago keeping Irving as happy as I could, which they called Swifty. He was known as Swifty. Swifty. So we had lots and lots of stars, and it was a, you know, it was fascinating to see somebody like a Murdoch with a Whoopi Goldberg, with a Sally Field, with Andy Warhol in the same room with, you know, um, Sophia Loren, Madonna, Warren Beatty. The, the photographs and the interaction and the memories are phenomenal. You know, Michael Jackson and Madonna coming in and Michael accidentally pushing her chair on, on the year she had that white cut on the bias uh, satin dress with the white boa mm -hmm. and she just yelled at him and said Michael you're on my and I said oh my god they sound like an old married couple <laughs> so there are many many or the time when Annette Benning and uh, Warren Beatty were together already and Madonna just came in and sat right on Warren's lap and I remember it was the corner of the dining room and I sat there and went oh no but Annette was fabulous she handled it so well we've had we have so many stories so many memories but the most important thing is the service and the quality of food and the relationships we made with our customers our guests that 
frankly, some of them are still coming here, so it's ongoing. And now we have the future in terms of Byron meeting all of these people. Some of them not, because they're gone. Oh. <laughs> it's great, because I know all the gossip from yeah. my mom and my dad right. both. I get everything, I so. Before we get into um, this chapter of Spago, when, what year was it, Barbara, that really, when you look back and you dial back the clock, what year was it when you thought to yourself, wow, it's, what was the defining year exactly? I actually think after the first year, uh -huh. we were able to pay back every single investor within the first year that unheard That's of, unheard of. which <laughs> simulated an awful lot of doctors and dentists who say we can open restaurants too, and a lot of them failed, including some of our partners who started opening other restaurants. So it was that, it was, you know, we didn't really have time to really think about the wow we made. Because truly, you've heard the adage about, it's like opening night, you're as good as your last meal, you're as good as your last show. It really was like that. Because along with all of the acclaim, you know, you have people complaining every night, you have people clamoring to get in, you can't fit everybody, you have people behaving well and people behaving really badly, really badly. <laughs> and Byron's laughing because we just went through four days of Valentine's Day because you can't fit them in on one night. And we had some, some events and it's like the third time in the history of Spago I had to ask somebody to leave. Wow. wow. Very strong. You would think with all the romantic air surrounding us on those days that people would be a little bit tamer, but... It's never the case. In fact, it gets, <laughs> their, their level of angst gets risen to a certain degree that and, and, is very fun from and, an operational perspective. Just to perspective. go back to the, I love the way you speak. You speak flowery, I love it. It's um, going <laughs> like back to shirt. that, thank you. So going back to that timeline again, Margaret, yes. I want to just interject another comment because it was when I was in culinary school in the Culinary Institute of America, I graduated in the late 80s. Oh, from so, CIA, which one? Uh, the one in Hyde Park. Oh, very nice. So it was then, and you don't know this, but I wrote a letter to work here. You did tell oh. me this story once, yes. and he is a great chef. So I wanted to work <laughs> here, and that was when it, 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 it falls in alignment with the timeline because everybody wanted to work here and probably still mm -hmm. does. But yes. you should have just shown up in all your adorableness. I figured, oh. you know what, I didn't realize what I had. I didn't realize what I had until I started using it a little and, later. And truly, oh. if you had shown up with your resume or whatever, but if you had shown up and demonstrated what you could do, there might have been a possibility. I mean, now we're constantly looking for line cooks, but you're so beyond that now, you know. Well, isn't it funny that I'm here today, yes. and that was the intention to be, you know. I, I, I have to, I remember pictures of you. Um, oh, you mean like this? I remember. Yes, I remember. Oh, the, yeah, I remember pictures of you, and you look exactly the same. Um, That's where, kind. Where you, where you, like, I remember thinking, man, she is just a diva. Like, look at her; she's got so much style, and that hasn't changed. So that's really, you know, the air. You talked about the air and the energy in the air, and you're so like unbelievably fortunate. I'm sure you know that to have had. The, the essence is in the walls, and the memories are here, and the energy still exists. Yeah. And to have that and use that as an ingredient for your success must yeah. be extraordinarily powerful. No, it's, it's unbelievable being able to grow up in this restaurant and witness my mom walk around has taught me so much throughout life. But in terms of just people dealing both within the restaurant and outside of it, um, it's been an incredible blessing for me because it's just guided me towards a certain path and once I was around 13 and decided what I wanted to do I never felt more at home in a job perspective at least than when I was at a restaurant no matter if I was at one of our own or outside of it so I always felt right at home in here and it always came to me from a familial perspective. I used to bring the children to the restaurant all the time because I waited so long to have children 35 and 41 I didn't want to be separated from them so he used to make concoctions at home that he would never try himself. It was chocolate milk and Aww. mustard and ketchup and it. pepper. Yeah. And then he would tell me to that taste it. But very I young said, at that point. I've got to give you some credit. He's a very, very good chef now. He would say, I said, okay, Byron, you taste it first and I'll taste it. He was too smart for that. But both I subconsciously knew what I was doing there. 
I think, a little bit. <laughs> but speaking of taste, I mean, probably a taste memory is from, a childhood taste memory is from He has Spago. a great palate. Yeah, complete. I mean, yeah. I was born and grew up a very plain eater, much to the dismay of both of my parents. I only wanted uh, plain Wait. pasta. I wanted plain cheese pizza, a Wiener schnitzel from time to time, French fries, but everything had to be white food. If it wasn't, if it wasn't like yellowy in, in color, I wouldn't touch it. And um, I still have this ingrained in my mind. I was uh, very young and I went to a sushi restaurant that's no longer in LA and I tried uni for the very first time and it was like a complete mind altering experience. I was kind of persuaded into eating it. I did not want to touch it by any means. And, um, and it uni? was, uni is essentially the reproductive organ of the sea urchin. It's an urchin. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So it's, it's usually served with sushi. Um, it's very predominant in Japanese cooking, especially. Um, we utilize a lot of it here. It's known as a delicacy, kind of like foie gras or something yes. along those lines. But it's unbelievably fantastic. Something that doesn't exist flavor-wise, texture-wise, and any other food or ingredient that exists in the world right now. So it was such a mind-altering experience for me. I realized I was missing out on so much up to that point. I was maybe around 11 at this age, and I was realizing how much I was missing out on, and that really provided me that, that moment to get out of my shell, finally, at least culinarily. Maybe so you that's, were just getting ready. I want I think to warn so, yeah. Margaret that when you try <laughs> just uni for the first time, ready. make sure it's <laughs> very, sure very fresh. Oh, exactly. okay. Good very, to know. very fresh. <laughs> I like that look on it, though. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> he was just getting ready. I said maybe his filter, he was just making sure that it was clean. Because as you develop, you know, yes. you have so many things that happen. Like, I love meeting people that don't like spinach or won't eat broccoli or won't try that. And it's usually because someone prepared it badly for them. Yeah. yeah. It's oh, so right. much based right. on memory. Right. All of food exactly. is based on exactly. nostalgia and memory. And it's really hard to persuade yourself to get out of those memories and, and experience something new or experience something the same that has been prepared in a completely different way that right. might make Wolfgang, you love it. Wolfgang had to change the way my father ate because my grandmother was basically a very poor cook, although I, she made a few things I really liked. So he wouldn't eat salmon, he wouldn't eat chicken, he hated chicken, he hated this. He, and the only thing he never changed was he still wanted his steak burnt. Yeah, always. Ooh, the joke was, start preparing it two weeks ahead, he's coming in for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> Our chefs didn't love him too much, but we did. <laughs> um, There's a certain flavor to that and a certain texture to yeah. that that also you know, who's to say what's right and wrong in, yeah. to the point? Yeah, you everything's know, subjective when it comes to food at the end of the day, right. so. I don't know what exactly the percentage is, but it's something like 5 to 7% or 8%. Something that's called super tasters. Mm. They have heightened levels of ability to taste, connection between the brain and olfactory and all of it. Because if you can't smell, you can't taste, right. you can't, it's all connected. So they're good, they're good smellers too. So they are super tasters. I think Byron is a super taster. Wow. Well, I'll, I'll graciously take that. Thank you no, very much. I don't know about that. He's but very discerning. I don't know if I actually fit within that statistic, but you're very right. It does exist. That was founded by the Coca-Cola company back in the day when they were doing testing between Pepsi and Coke and uh, doing the blind taste testing. There was a lot of research done on who tasted more. So a lot of those people that test in that percentile now end up getting hired by these large food or beverage corporations in order to be the taste testers for their food. But you know, as a chef, Jamie, that you put food down in front of somebody and you ask them, they can't really discern what's in it. What, then again, they haven't had experience tasting certain kinds of spices and herbs and whatever. So they have lack of experience there too. But Byron is able to, I think, taste a dish and really discern what's the various components. And that's takes a skill. Dine with her eyes first is mm. what was printed when we did this article a long time ago. And the idea is you're coming in and hopefully the aroma is wafting across the room. The restaurant feels and looks a certain way. People are greeting you a certain way. It is so m many, so, so much a combination of all of your senses. Mm -hmm. And if that is what evokes a very profound and deep memory. Mm -hmm. And actually, Margaret started Kitchen Chat because of her father, who was mm -hmm. loved, who was a very fine yes. home cook. So what was your first? I'm interviewing you now. What was your first <laughs> taste memory? Hollandaise sauce. Ah. 
Yes, every Saturday he would make the Eggs Benedict and very meticulously. I never joined him in doing that, but I'd always observe very meticulously Do you create know how to that. Make it now? I made it. Yes. <laughs> and I know. I d yes, because Ann Willen, when I went into her Why kitchen. Why did you teach her? <laughs> He's teaching me the uh, soda yeah, and all this other I teach a lot of different things, but to answer your yes. question on my side of things, I come oh. from a big Italian family, 11 brothers and sisters. Wow. And I know you and I didn't know that yes, there's so many. so I have a huge <laughs> Italian family, so my memories of like being a kid and the smell of like Sunday gravy and meatballs and things like that were like what woke us up in the morning. But what changed me um, and what where, when I knew that food meant something was when my grandfather was very ill and I was probably eight and he only could eat certain things and one of the things he craved was baked apples it was something that he could eat he could digest and he liked it, it was it made him happy and I when I we all had took turns on making these baked apples but he only wanted me to do it and I my mother wondered why 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 mm. him and I knew that I was putting a certain amount of intention in it and I wanted to make him healthy and I wanted to make him happy. So I knew exactly the way he liked it. I knew that I had the way I touched it, the way, just the amount of browning. And when I served it to him all the way through, it was to say, here, Grandpa, I know this is going to make you happy. And that's not changed anything ever. That was the main moment in my life where I knew this is what I have to do for It's living. the food wow. is love and the food is medicine. Yes. I, when my mother passed away, I, start, I had to take over making the yams for my father. And he liked them prepared dreadfully. <laughs> it's the dreadful flavor. He likes so much brown sugar on it and so much maple syrup and so much more. It was dreadful, but he loved them, loved them, loved them. It's basically sugar with a little yam. But he liked when I did it. So, you know, it, it is. Intention's an important thing, and it is about love, and it is about family. Yeah, why, uh, this is not the easiest industry by any means, and I say it all the time, is why why do this if you don't have the passion or love behind it, especially as a chef or me myself operating as a manager at this point? Like, I, d I do this strictly because I genuinely enjoy and love every single day. I can walk through these doors and be able to make the other people that walk through the other set of doors, the front doors, me coming in through the back, I want to make them as happy as possible. Whether they've had a good day or a bad day, mm -hmm. I can try and exceed their expectations as much as possible the moment they hit their seats in this restaurant. There's, there's a different thing about what the word hospitality mm. in, in, you know, envelops many things. Many things. It does. And I know that love and intention definitely very important ingredients, but also the training. Of so course. can you share with us what has your culinary training been? <laughs> um, I've been very fortunate to travel the world in, in my young age of 25 right now and be able to work at fantastic restaurants for some completely game-changing altering chefs that have been you know at the top of Michelin lists or San Pellegrino lists that have created a huge impact on how I view the culinary world so I started off when I was about 12 here at Spago I used to wash dishes in the back and come up to the front and put on a suit and host sometimes Never as well at home <laughs> <laughs> yes very true um, and uh, that's where I first started was within these halls. I mean, growing up in here and eating, but then finally working here. Uh, worked with our pastry chef for a little while as well and did that for a few years until about 16. I moved to London for the summer uh, during high school and worked for Nobu Matsuhisa at the Metropolitan Hotel for uh, about three months. <laughs> For, I know, right? <laughs> and that was amazing, though, to be thrown into something like that, um, especially where you kind of have a name attached to yourself and people expect a certain amount out of you. And me being very, very green in terms of my cooking up to that point, meaning I really didn't have any idea what I was doing in the kitchen. Um, that was a insane process for me because... I had to overcome expectations, but at the same time really train myself to get as good as possible. So I felt like I was keeping up and didn't feel like I was an anchor or a weight pulling the rest of the staff down, but I was a member that could actually contribute and hold my weight in the kitchen and be a part of a team. Um, and being there, I remember my first like couple days, they had me 
cutting their chives I like paper thin, <laughs> like absolute paper thin. For a sushi restaurant, it's the ultimate amount of precision is necessary. And the chef would come by and did this for three days in a row. That's all I did was cut their chives. And every hour he would come by and walk by me and I would have a mound of chives on my cutting board, which was about this size, up to here. And he would look and swipe his hand through all of them and within two seconds he'd be like, no, not good. And pick up the whole cutting board and take my knife and swipe them all in the garbage and be like, start again. And so I'd start again. <laughs> I'd have no other option there. And that happened like on the hour for every 10 hours I was in that kitchen, right? For the first three days I was there. And I'm 16, I really don't know what's going on at this point, so I'm going home so distraught with myself and not knowing if, if this is exactly what I wanted to do. It was so difficult for me and I didn't have training before that. Um, and I was really, really nervous in all honesty at the time that this I wasn't cut out for this necessarily. But for exactly what you said, training is so much of it. And I just didn't have enough of that at that point. And those chefs there were very kind and realized that. So instead of throwing me into the fire every moment they could, I would have a couple of them realize I was struggling and they would come over to the side when they finished their work and help me a little bit and explain to me maybe a new technique or a new way to try this dish or what flavors worked better with this versus that. And it was unbelievable. I learned so much in that two, three month period working for them that I instantly fell in love and realized how much potential I could possibly have in this industry with, ama with the amazing people, especially I was working with. I'd be lucky to travel to New York after working for Nobu. I traveled to New York. I worked for Eric Repair at La Bernadette, and I enjoyed that immensely, working with the fish butcher who's been there 35 years and just learning a more classical style of cuisine. And then I immediately turned that on its head by going to Chicago and working for Grant Ackett's at Alinea which was one of, if not the most meaningful experience for me because I realized I wanted nothing but Grant's job. The ability to come in and create this unbelievable array of food every single day that most of the time no one had ever seen a dish like that before was just uncanny to me. I thought it was the coolest thing ever and I knew at that moment I was like, I want Grant's job. I would look at him with like a bundle of twigs and like eight brass bowls build a nest and create duck eight different ways and I was like this is it I know exactly what I want to do for the rest of my life I was about 18 at that time and I was like I figured it out like I got it um, so I trained there with him for quite a while I then moved to Spain and worked for the Roca brothers at El Sayer de Can Roca which is still my favorite restaurant experience to this day um, an unbelievable quality of life mixed with an unbelievable passion for their style of cuisine. I had never seen a restaurant operate at three-star Michelin levels, number one in the world on San Pellegrino's list, and every chef in there has an ear-to-ear -ear smile on their face day in, day out for all those 12 hours they're there. And that was beautiful to me. I thought that would, you could not ask for a better culture in a restaurant than that. And then went off from there to France, worked for Guy Savoie, and uh, Eric Frechon at Le Epicure at the Bristol Hotel, and then had a short stint as well in Seattle working for Nathan Mirvold um, at Modernist Cuisine. I'm sure you've seen like the six-volume yes. cookbook set and everything. Sure, you're in my living room right yeah. now. <laughs> but after I saw that volume set, I was like, I have to go see what they're doing. And they graciously let me in their kitchen, and I learned there for uh, one summer. That was a fun and experience for me because I Yeah, my mom. mom actually came up with me. <laughs> I came up. He wanted me to come up, so I came up. But I, I was fascinating because also Gates has his, the way they've designed that, they have a number of different organizations in the same space. So I'm cooking, and right next door to me, they're building laser mosquito nets. Literally, like 20 feet away from me, they're figuring out fight, how to fight malaria. Get, yeah, in oh, Africa. Which, since my it's background in biochemistry, it was fascinating to me. So he's doing that, and I'm visiting them. Yeah, Amazing. it was the coolest like were, research and development and lab. And they were I making the double-barreled uh, um, deep freeze for vaccines to go to Africa oh. and other places that could last a month. So the whole place was very cutting edge. Anyway. So you were there and then... And then finally, post-college, I went to Cornell's Hospitality School and focused more on the business side of things. Mm -hmm. And then since graduating for there, I uh, 
with two other chefs led our research and development kitchen, the Wolfgang Puck Test Kitchen here in L.A., um, where the name of the game was you don't cook anything that's a Wolfgang Puck recipe, and hopefully whatever you make has never been seen before. And you couldn't have asked me for a better job description because so that was the best thing in the world. So what you're saying really is that you really haven't had a lot of experience. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm very, very new to this at the end of the day. I mean, in all honesty, I am. I'm only 25. Yeah. This, you are oh. giving me chills. The only thing that's different, and he's going to hear me out for a moment, is when you have your own restaurant. You know, you know what they say, watch what you wish for? Mm. Like you're talking about Grant's job. When you actually have a restaurant and you're cooking there, and you're cooking there 15 years, 20 years, day in, day out, it's, it's a different animal yeah. then. It's a different animal. There's an expectation. So yeah. you're a millennial, and yeah. are you, what are the trends within the millennials that might be reshaping the restaurants I think and how that question. approaches? For me personally, I'm very huge on sustainability, mm -hmm. and I love that that's a huge facet of what millennials believe in nowadays. So statistics show millennials, 74% of millennials are much more geared to, to invest in businesses, give repeat business to companies that are focused on the local community, environmental sustainability, and this ultimate appeal of giving back, essentially. So essentially 75% of us are looking for businesses that not only satiate us in a certain regard, but satiate the community as well. Yes. So moving forward, I think environmental sustainability, I think communal giving, whether it be in LA where we have such a huge homeless problem, mm -hmm. being able to give that leftover food and what we have left to more communities that are in much more need than we might be here in Beverly Hills is imperative, not just from the standpoint of doing good for the community, but in all honesty, like that's what people are looking for nowadays. And from a business mindset, we have to look at that as well as but you know, as far back as 1982, we started that in many ways yeah. because we were using products that were indigenous to California, hmm. uh, not importing everything, not thinking that we were second rate to Europe or other places in any way. And, you know, we were trying to build on that concept of using things that did not create an enormous footprint. And even when I was building and designing the restaurants, I thought of that as well. Where do you get the wood? Where do you do this? How do yeah. you supply things? So these things matter to me. And even Granita and Malibu that I got, you know, I went into the, inducted into the Hall of Fame, platinum, you know, the Platinum Circle Hall of Fame. It was, even there at Granita, there was 124 artisans and one, only one element came from Europe. Everything else were American artisans doing everything. And that was part of the whole piece and the story was that we were going to support America. Oh, and you do so much for the community as it well, is. Well, we started. Too. We started the American Wine and Food Festival for 29 years, the American Cancer Society for 28 years, and we continue on. We're about to have our 36th year of Passover Seder from Maison to feed the hungry in the community. I'm involved in a lot of charities. I might sit on the board of many. So this started way back. I did the first uh, women and children uh, event for HIV AIDS. I did the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS thing. At a time, really, in 1982 and 83, where people were still very odd and weird about mm. HIV and AIDS. Mm. And they thought you might get it just by being next to a person. Yeah, I remember so that feeling. So I got involved very early on, and these these were very important issues, and we had a lot of staff, not only in my design world, my design industry, but within the restaurant that were afflicted, and this was important. Wow. What's really, really interesting. And Byron will continue this. Yes. What's really interesting to me is that you, know, like, you, you started at a time when you know, restaurants have been around for a very long period of time. Hundreds, hundreds of, of years, years with the, ta the tavern and, right, the, and the exactly. hundreds of years. But you came along at a, at a, in sort of a point where, like a, almost a breaking point, where lots of things like the Food Network and um, a lot of frequency where, where chefs became celebrities. Except that, well, Wolfgang, I like to believe, I helped create the first celebrity chef, putting him on TV. Uh, the, the cookbook, making sure his name was bigger than Mommy's on it, but putting him on a TV show that then led to Good Morning America. Uh, 
it was 100, it, the first show was in 117 markets. I really was planning it, but this predates all of social media. This is where, mm -hmm. exactly, but all this is where I'm going. Media. Like you guys really were the pioneers for that, I believe, yes. when people began to think of like chefs as household names and celebrities. Mm -hmm. Everybody yeah, knew all of a sudden, all of a sudden, people weren't so embarrassed that their son or daughter didn't want to be a doctor or an attorney anymore. And then but, all of a sudden, mm -hmm. everybody wanted to be a movie star in the restaurant. They wanted to become that celebrity chef, and then came after that. But I remember which is problematic too. It is. Yeah. It is. It is. Everybody's going to be a celebrity yeah. chef. But it creates know. a good culture, I think, within the in the individual business at least, where we raise every single chef in all of our restaurants up on a pedestal. So whether it be at Spago Beverly Hills right yeah. now, mm -hmm. our superstar here is. Really, it's in, in my opinion, it's not me, it's not you, it's not Wolfgang, it's Ari, Chef Ari Rosenson in the back right. is the one who's and creating all of our food this and day and age. Della, our pastry and Della, yes. exactly. Oh, and those change. are the two that we kind of hoist above because they're the ones that are creating this unbelievable experience for our guests. It's our job in the front of the house to make that that much more special, mm -hmm. but ultimately those are the superstars in any one of our kitchens. And you can clearly yes. tell that when you follow your Instagram and uh, Barbara with you, when you're celebrating even the retirement of these people, yeah. you can tell. Tetsu Yahagi was our chef for 14 and a half years. I mean, when I read those posts on Instagram, mm -hmm. I, I got a little faclent, I gotta no, tell you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he was like, he's like family. That's what, and I thought to myself, what an honor to be part of the yes. history and yeah. what an honor to have people who you work for and work with essentially treat you like family. How important is that in your future? I think it's immensely important, but it also just, it, going back to what I was saying, it creates this culture where people want to come into work and they come in with a smile on their face knowing that, you know, whatever's going on maybe in their personal life, it's not just their friends or family that can uplift them, but it's the server or busser to their right or left that can do just the same because they've been here for so long, they know each other so well, there's just this overwhelming sense of loyalty between the staff and between the company and the staff that makes it so pleasurable to be here that I think the familial aspect is something that makes us thrive and allows us to keep opening these amazing restaurants because of that just innate culture where people want to help each other out. And Byron just touched on it, it's not just the chefs, he just said it. The busboys, the wait staff, all the, the the dishwashers. She's wonderful in the kitchen. Uh, Adalia is my I favorite. I love <laughs> and, and you Everyone know we also yeah. and we also have people that are making the pizzas now that started off as dishwashers. Yeah. Oh, and great. let me tell you, they're making excellent salaries. Yeah. We great. once had labor come in one Where time. Where do I apply? And, <laughs> no, they came in labor one came in to check one time many years ago and after going through the books, I remember at Spago Hollywood too and they said, I've never seen people get paid like this. So I think respecting your employees on mm -hmm. every level, understanding their value, being kind because mm. kindness you know you can pay somebody whatever you want to pay them if you are still if you are unkind to them it isn't worth it right agree right. now i love how you mentioned good morning america it was such a treat to see you recently <laughs> on good morning america continuing the tradition of the governor's ball yeah i'd love to hear about that experience and the history behind those little gold chocolate statues well <laughs> that goes back prior to Byron, and then he should talk about the prep for that. Um, that involves, uh, they wanted the little chocolate things, we came up with them, but you know, we're not allowed to produce them any other place. We have a contract, you cannot, you cannot make them here and give them out. They are very strident about the, mm. the trademark on that. We're the only one with the contract to produce them in a food sense at all. Yeah. And only for that event, by no means uh, no, nothing else. Um, outside of that. So Byron's gone a number of times and he has to, you know, it isn't, I think he should explain it, it isn't just you go, you serve the food, it takes a lot of preparation. Yeah, so it, it's months of preparation in terms of menu designing, hiring all the staff required. We're cooking from anywhere between 16 to 1800 people. And Byron, excuse me, this was yeah. all plant-based. This year was 70% plant-based, yeah. which was really cool to see. Um, obviously, within the media, especially these days, we've been seeing the growing need for vegetarian and vegan options, which, per one of your earlier questions, I think is one of the biggest trends we see in food today is this 
I like to call almost a green food revolution, mm-hmm. where so much more of menus and just cuisine in general has become focused on that. So we decided to implore that for the governor's ball menu this year. So this was my 12th year doing it. We've been doing it for 25 now, which is as long as I've been around on this earth in general, which was really cool. But my 12th year, it is an unbelievable privilege to be there every year, not only cooking the food with our amazing staff, but then being able to go on the red carpet, explain it to all the media outlets that are there, and then ultimately serving it to our amazing esteemed guests that enter through the governor's ball doors. Um, my probably most standout memory is being able to serve no. Meryl Streep. I, I was hoping you were going to And I ended up writing my college essay on that experience. She, by the way, is the most lovely, gracious, she amazing is. woman. I and oh, I wait, wrote I my college essay on it. And then six years later at the governor's ball, I found her on the red carpet again and I stopped her. I was like, I have to tell you, I wrote... Yeah, I wrote about you in my Common App application, and I just wanted to let you know it all worked out, and I got into the school, and she was, like, so excited about oh, it. But I want to And it was just that. such a moment for me. I want me. to clarify that. You didn't just write. You wrote about me taking you to serve sandwiches to the homeless, and then the contrast of mm. serving... Meryl Streep, yeah. So, so it was all about the ju- yeah. juxtaposition of who you yeah. serve yeah. in yeah. life yeah. And, and finding right. the gold, essentially, right. in each one of those moments, no matter who it is or what you're serving. It's almost the same feeling if you think about it. Yeah, yes. it really it's is. Actually, good point. The love and the sustenance you give somebody... But that, that was it, exactly. No matter the circumstance that you're in, the love that surrounds food and people is, should always it be should there. Always be exactly. So there really wasn't much of a difference, but it was having those, those different experiences in my life and being able to meld them, I think, has, one, changed me into the person I am now, I guess, but at the same time has just provided me with so much more knowledge to to move on with for the rest of my life. Now, do you think we can convince Byron to eat a little more? Yeah, I know. That's what everyone says in the in the dining room when I'm around guests and stuff. They're like, does your dad and mom feed you at all? I'm like, no. They just put me to work. The will be very interesting for the restaurant business in general. Yes. And it's interesting, yeah. too, to be, you know, in life we have to take each moment. As Margaret and we all know, each moment is precious. And yep. you feel like... You have to take opportunity in the moment. And obviously this interview will be embedded in time. So with that said, um, is there anything that you guys, looking back on this interview with like such great, we all have such big hearts, that you want to say to each other or like when you look back, here's a moment that you can look back Mm -hmm. and reference for the rest of your lives like while you have this moment. Byron, I love you and I want to thank you for letting me share this interview with you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to top that one. Uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, this is a moment where you're gonna. <laughs> Don't cry on us. It's supposed to be happy in here. Yeah, it's happy tears. It's a good thing. It was kind of him to let me share the interview. Yeah, yeah but but you know, this is something. What do you mean, let you share the interview? <laughs> the, the, the thing is, and the point being made is that you only are as good as the moment you share. And right now is a moment. You're gonna look back on this one day. Maybe it's gonna be 30 years from now. Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't want to be. You know, I'm like crying myself. This is a time where you could like look oh, back. Honey, on I that. hope yeah. in thirty years I can. You're gonna be. Look you're back. gonna be. You're gonna be. The yeah, last you'll be standing. Yeah. <laughs> no, but in in all honesty, I I obviously love you as well. But I thank you for everything I've learned up to this point in my life, and I know the lessons obviously don't stop here as well. So I look forward to continuing this path with you, and everything you have to bestow on me is in, I'm incredibly grateful for. And I'm just looking forward to the next 20 years. And just think of all the things you're going to teach me. <laughs> we'll see about that. We'll see what happens. Oh, this is just thank so you beautiful. For that. Yes, <laughs> thank you. And I always like to end kitchen chat with the top three tips for the home chef, but also Ooh. the top three tips from a parent to raise such a wonderful son. Well, I have to child. say, since I don't cook that much, one of my top tips actually would be if you're doing a party at home. Get as much prepared ahead as you can so that you can enjoy your guests because it's very hard when you're trying to, you know, Byron will have very good tips. I think, I think the most important thing as a parent is to genuinely try to listen to your child. It's not always easy. <laughs> it's not always easy, but I did listen to Byron. He maybe doesn't remember it when he was small. I listened to him, I, and I also tried to counsel him when he had 
concerns about things, I always told him, Byron, if you have misgivings, you don't want to do this, you do want to do this, I don't care what it is you do with your life. My, and this, I mean, from the bottom of my heart, is I just wanted him to be happy, productive and happy, and do something that gives back, but it had to make him happy. And if he wasn't going to be happy in his selection of work choice, life choice, a partner in his life mm -hmm. at some point, then it's not for him. But as a mother, we want our children to be happy. And then um, sometimes he has to listen to yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll take that one. <laughs> um, what am I doing? Top three kitchen tips? Or yes, what for the okay. chef. I'm um, a sip of water. Well, it depend. It obviously all depends on what you got at your disposal at home. I'm a big fan of of not necessarily like overstocking your fridge, but buying what's necessary. I think there's certain things like people should always have in their fridge. I like to call it the flavor makers, let's say. So it's like herbs and seasonings and like some garlic. So like in your fridge, I would always have stocked like rosemary, thyme, garlic, onion, sea, like good sea salt, not iodized salt, um, some fresh cracked black pepper and some chili flake, olive oil. So like those eight things, like I would keep your kitchen stocked with that. And from that base, you can really create so many other things. So from that point on, if you, uh, if you want to freeze your meat, you can go ahead and do it. But you're only risking, you know, like a 10-minute trip to the supermarket to go pick up your chicken. And then you have everything else at home already to make that chicken as flavorful as possible. I forgot butter. Nine. Nine. <laughs> um, so that's already nine things too many, but that's what I keep in my fridge at all times, just to make sure whatever I am making for dinner that night, I have enough there to make it as delicious as possible. Um, I, so I would say proper stocking, I guess, as, as first one, not overstocking your fridge and letting food go bad, um, and not being afraid to not necessarily buy the most beautiful looking like tomato, right? Just because something has like a bulge over here and not over here doesn't mean it's worse for you. I it's like it's ugly, just yeah. I love it's ugly like fruit and vegetables. Exactly. Like, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't shy yeah. away from those things and unfortunately in this world so much of the world needs food aid mm -hmm. and we're throwing away produce that is just as good Absolutely. as the next one yeah. only because it doesn't look as yeah, good. Sometimes that's that, that ugly fruit that's gonna do the yeah. magic. Yeah, yes. and don't so Taste don't be afraid of that. Um, I would definitely say don't be afraid to use, if you want to go healthy, stay away from this tip. But restaurant cooking is like three times the amount of butter and two salt. times the amount of salt. <laughs> so do not be afraid to use those ingredients when you're cooking for others and you want to make your food that much more delicious and hearty. Uh, if you're cooking a healthier meal, stick mm -hmm. to your extra virgin olive oil, I'm I guess. Gonna, I'm going to add <laughs> one more. I'm going to add one, one more yeah. ask from each one of you, if you don't mm, mind. I know sure. the truth. And, uh, and maybe we can make this a little bit more, like, concise. If you're going to give somebody who's a young, budding chef and, and, and all the experiences and all the open doors that you were able to walk through that maybe they wouldn't be able to walk through yeah. mm -hmm. um, right away, can you give that person that that person's going to be watching, whether they be young or old, because mm -hmm. opportunities can happen yeah. and you can yeah. follow your dream at any point in life these days. What would be the one thing that you learn, really, whether like from all that experience, that if they don't get the chance that you can share with them? I would, I would definitely say if you're looking to get into the restaurant industry under any part of it, front of the house, back of the house, you should throw yourself into the, to the fire, essentially. And don't be afraid to get into a restaurant, whatever it might be, fine dining, fast casual, mm -hmm. fast food, whatever it is in whatever position they have open, do not be afraid to just jump in and ask. And the secondary part of that is when you do do that part, don't be afraid to ask as many questions as possible. Mm -hmm. You'll annoy some people at the end of the day, but there's only one way you're going to get better and that's by learning as much as possible. And the moment you don't know something, don't hesitate to ask a question, even if it makes you feel a little bit stupid sometimes. Amazing. And Barbara, being this iconic restaurateur, what would be um, the one advice you would give that restaurateur that's maybe not Spago, that might be on the edge of like the breakthrough or the shutdown? Can you well, give them a little bit saying, of Are you asking 
a restaurateur who's starting a restaurant who already has a restaurant? With all the years of experience that you have now, what did what would be the thing that someone what, that you wish someone would have told you? I think we knew it then, but I, I think it's important to remember it again when we opened other restaurants. Uh, you're not building, even though I'm a designer and you want to create a beautiful space, you're not building a monument to yourself. You're building, you have to think about making sure that you have enough money left in the coffers to keep this restaurant going, whatever it might be, if things are not going well. We had it with the, with the uh, recession where we had to do a lot of maneuvering to, to not have to fire our staff. We gave them part-time, we gave, we did a lot of redistribution of things. So it's important to always know that you have to keep money mm -hmm. on the side for all kinds of contingencies, that you can spend, spend money to make it look good or whatever, but it's about making sure you have the best products, you have the best staff, you, you have to make sure it's sustainable and Byron was talking about sustainability from the sense of you know food products what you use and materials I'm talking about whenever I used to build a restaurant that if you're investing that kind of money in it make sure your chairs are going to hold up your mm. floors are going to hold very, up. very very good mm. point and of yes. course we come from a corporation that focuses on the Middleby Corporation focuses on kitchen equipment commercial kitchen equipment. When you think about equipment and innovation, and I had to add this in yes. towards the end, and it's a big question. You know, your kitchen equipment, you can hire great chefs, you can hire a great team, you can hire all that, but your kitchen equipment. Well, yeah. you you know, you, you have Viking, right? You have all the other. We own commercially, we own other big brands like Blodgett, Jade, Pitco, South Bend, all those big brands. The Middle East Corporation owns hundreds of brands with you know, and they're at the, the right now the helm of all that innovation that's coming forward, like robotics, which is kind of replacing in some instances employees. A lot. There's a lot more coming up in, in the AI sector of cooking now, especially. I think you're going to witness within the next 30 years the biggest change within the fast casual industry. Yeah. So whether it be just everything from a techno technological standpoint, from the ordering perspective, the really the only thing like I see fast casual restaurants keeping is someone to clean the tables. Wow. You'll be able to order yourself and you're gonna have robotics in the next 30 to 50 years be able to cook your food for you and get it to you at a faster time. And then you'll be able to sit there with your friend and on the same thing you just ordered all your food for and paid for it on, you'll be able to play like some format of battleship or something right. while you're waiting for your food. You, you see know? it already 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 in Tokyo. We go into some sushi bars and it would, the food's rolling around. And exactly. You, I've, I saw it then, but I, rolling it back, I still want to say I just want to underscore again that if you're going to invest in a space, if you're if you don't have a space that's going to hold up and be viable for a certain amount of time, you're not going to be able to sustain your restaurant economically. So as a restaurateur, I think of it as a, it's a business. As, you know, it's, we're in the business of making people happy. We're in the business of providing hospitality, but we're also in the business of running a business yes. with a bottom line, <laughs> yes. and it has to work out numbers-wise. Uh, you know, it just, your, your net, I mean, if you don't at the bottom, at, at the end of the day, if you don't make a profit, you're not staying in business. Do you guys That's have true. any idea, Margaret, can you imagine, like how many people do you support? <laughs> many. And you know what? When we had to close, Byron was too young then, or I don't even know if you were born then. When we had to close a couple of restaurants, I, I seriously stood in the restaurant and just cried because mm -hmm. you know that some of those staff members are just a paycheck away one paycheck from not being able to pay their rent. And so what we did in one of them, in Eureka, we didn't pay the State Board of Equalization. We worked out the million dollars, which really came down to these two partners that didn't tell us at the time. We did not know. We paid all of our staff severance pay and everything else so we knew they could eat and live and hopefully uh, feed their children. And then we took it on ourselves, and we, we took on a million dollars worth of debt. I almost lost our, the house I live in now. We almost lost our house over that. This business isn't about just all the successes. So what I would tell a, I had somebody come in uh, 
six months ago, sitting at the table next to us saying, I don't know if you remember me, but 10 years ago, you told me to go for my dream and whatever. And I told you I had failed at this one and failed at that one. He goes, now I have like 80 successful um, fast food restaurants and it's because of you. I said, because of me? He goes, yes, you told me about your failures. You told me that just with all the successes, you do have failures. It, and I just kept, and he was sitting here with his new wife. And that was a really good feeling. Wow. To know when you can influence people. So you ask how many people's lives have we influenced? Many. And how many people have come out of this restaurant to open their own restaurant? Even more. Yes. Well, cheers to And that you. will happen for Byron, too. He will <laughs> be creating that. Yes. Cheers to the legacy. And here's to good health cheers. above yes. everything else. And wait, don't we get to say yes? So, <laughs> thank <laughs> you. <laughs> so, thank you so much, Chef Byron. Thank, thank you, you for having dear me. Dear Barbara, and thank you to my co host, oh, Chef love Jamie Larissa. I love you, you know, but I love them so much. <laughs> no. I, I won't do take it. offense. I want to do okay. it with you. Always, oh and thank you, dear foodie friends, for yes. joining us on this fun. And always, always remember, remember to take a moment. moment. And savor the day. <laughs> I got to do it. <laughs> Thanks for joining Margaret for Kitchen Chat today. Margaret would be so excited for you to drop by and visit with her at kitchenchat.info, where you'll enjoy podcasts, blogs, recipes, tips from chefs, and even great giveaways. She invites you to share your recipes and kitchen stories, too. As Margaret always says, savor the day.